Hey there, welcome back for episode number 100 of the Ranching Reboot Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alexander. You might have seen me on social media as Red Hills Rancher. On this podcast, we talk to some of today's most innovative and progressive farmers and ranchers, rebooting your thinking about food systems and the people that operate them. This podcast is sponsored by my generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. You can go check out all the awesome benefits and sweet merch available by clicking the link in the show notes. If you're new here, I just wanted to let you know you can expect a new episode every Monday morning. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you get all the new episodes when they drop first thing Monday morning to start your week off right. Don't forget to check out my other social media. You can find all those links and much more by clicking on the Linktree link in the show notes. And don't forget to check out my YouTube page. I'm putting lots of content on there. On this week's episode, I'm joined on Zoom by Christian libertarian environmentalist lunatic farmer himself, Joel Salatin from Polyface Farms in Swope, Virginia. We cover all sorts of things from backyard chickens to creative ways to deal with the food police and onwards to homesteading tsunami that Joel thinks is coming. I love making content for the podcast and I've roadmapped out some goals and milestones and I need your help to get there. I don't mind if you skip the ads. Sometimes I do it too, especially on Joe Rogan and that's okay. I need you to take just a tiny moment out of your day while you're scrolling and go check out my sponsors. Please either click the link in the show notes or on my link tree. Every click matters to my sponsors. This episode of the podcast sponsored by Bobo Links from Blue Nest Beef. Bobo Links beef sticks are incredibly delicious, made with natural seasonings and slow cooked to perfection. They have the right blend of tang, smoke, and spice. I always have some close by for a protein boost when I'm too busy to stop for a meal. Bobo Links are gluten-free, soy-free, casein-free, and sugar-free, packed with 7 grams of protein and only 70 little calories per serving. So if you're looking for a snack that's both nutritious and delicious, give Bobo Links beef sticks from Blue Nest Beef a try. I know you'll love them as much as I do. Click the link in the show notes and use the code Bobo Reboot for $10 off your first pack. Confession time. I have a very hard time eating. I'm a picky eater and it's been a struggle my whole life to fuel my body properly. When I got curious about nutrition, I asked my doctor about vitamins and that led to a conversation about where vitamins come from. He didn't know. And I realized I needed to make a change. So I started searching for a better source of high quality nutritional supplements to spend my hard earned dollars on. I reached out to several companies, and I'm proud to announce a partnership with a company I can stand behind. Introducing One Earth Health Grass-Fed Beef Organ Supplements. Organ meats are the most nutrient-dense foods we can eat and have been uniquely treasured by our ancestors. Organ meats are not only nutrient-dense, but they're also a great source of essential vitamins and minerals. The liver is packed with vitamin A, K, and E, while the heart is a great natural source of COQ10. The spleen contains four times the amount of iron as the liver, and the kidney is a great source of vitamin B complex. The pancreas supports gut health. I can't tell you how much better I feel since I started taking these supplements. When I don't take them, I have much less energy and focus. Just a few capsules every morning gives me everything my body needs to thrive. We are built to eat diverse diets that include whole animals and organ meats. We have lost our perspective on food and its purpose. Give yourself the gift of radical health. Give yourself One Earth Health grass-fed beef organ supplements. Visit www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or just click the link in the show notes. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
Well, Joel Salton, good morning, sir. It is great to finally have you here with us on Ranching Reboot. How are you in Virginia? I'm doing great, and uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be with you. Yes. Well, that, that's a little bit flattering. <laughs> so I imagine out there in podcast land, there's maybe one or two of my listeners that don't actually know who you are. So can you give us your 30-second uh, introduction elevator speech? Sure. So I'm uh, I'm a Christian libertarian environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer in Virginia Shenandoah Valley. Our family uh, co-owns uh, Polyface Farm in uh, in western 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 Virginia, not to be confused with West Virginia. And uh, in the Shenandoah Valley, we have uh, beef, pork, chicken, turkey, rabbit, lamb, uh, duck eggs. And uh, and lumber, uh, forestry products, and we direct market everything to you know to uh, individuals as a as a brand. Very cool, very cool. Um, haven't you written also like twelve or thirteen books? Yeah, uh, fifteen books, and uh, in fact, I just finished number sixteen uh, Saturday, and uh, I mean just the rough draft of it, but it's it's sitting here ready for the next for the next review. Yes. Oh, can we get an early preview of the title? Uh, yes, the title is Homestead Tsunami. Good for our country, kids, and critters. Okay, I get it. Wow, that I think that's a great place to jump off. And so in the last couple of years since, uh, all right, Spotify, give me another COVID warning. Since COVID hit the world and really started changing the way people look at Oh, their job and what's essential and social contact and especially food and food culture. It does kind of seem like we're getting, as you, you know, as you put it in your book title, a tsunami of new homesteaders, um, you know, new money, tech money, trying to flee the cities, flee the East coast, flee the West coast and go somewhere where land is cheaper, where they can work remotely and do a little homesteading. Um, I'm assuming you see some problems with that. Well, uh, I see, I see, I see a, a great deal of encouragement from that. I'm, I'm thrilled to see people uh, become homesteaders. And so this book is about the why, what, what is driving this everything from, you know, uh, uh, urban crime to, yeah, you mentioned it, um, you know, uh, food, you know, food safety, food security issues, um, you know, uh, uh, kids and screen time, uh, all sorts of, all sorts of issues. And, um, and so it, I think intuitively, intuitively, Brian, when, when people feel like the wheels are going to come off, if the wheels are going to come off, I don't want to be stuck in the city. You know, they want to be out where they can, you know, drink from a Creek, um, you know, shoot a, a deer, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and survive. And uh, so there, there is absolutely a homestead tsunami going on right now in the country, and of course it's you know it's it's um, it, it's it's driving a lot of things. I mean, you know, um, a, a nuance of it was the fact that in 2020, one million new backyard flocks of chickens started. One million new backyard flocks of chickens in 2020. Uh, in 2020, Lehman's, who's the you know they're the um, not non-electric supplier there in Ohio. They sold 10 years worth of uh, canning lids in six months, or I'm sorry, in a year. In, in 2020, they sold what they, they sold in canning lids, what they normally sell in 10 years. And so 
these these all speak of uh, of of a renewed uh, interest in you know in in these kinds of uh, self-reliant uh, independence issues. The, the the phrase I hear people come in here all the time and they say, "How do I disentangle? How do I disentangle?" They feel you know with digital currency uh, coming along, the tracking we see around. How do I disentangle from the system so I can you know so I can opt out? And and I think the homestead movement is part of that, you know, part of that whole awareness, just like you said. Yeah, you know, people. People are wanting to be more in charge of their food. And, you know, you brought up a million new backyard chicken flocks in 2020. And, you know, something that's been in the news by the time this comes out, it'll have been a couple of weeks ago, is egg shortage and egg prices. Yes. That was something we talked about. I've, I've talked about previously in podcast episodes about, you know, what do we do if one of these big commercial hatcheries go down? And where I'm going with this is, yeah, we've got a million new people that want to do backyard chickens. And I'm assuming that most of those bought their fertilized eggs or bought chicks, you know, from farm store or from one of our big commercial hatcheries. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the the egg shortage that's going on right now in grocery stores is because there's not layer flocks because they had to be culled several months ago for bird flu. So where I'm going is are you developing your own chicken breed? Do you raise your own chickens or are you still buying eggs? <laughs> so for our, for our layers, for our layers, we, we have been um, hatching our own chicks. Now we have our own breeder flock. Uh, we hatch our own eggs and have been doing that now for about eight years. And I can assure you they are, I mean, it, it's a hassle. It's a pain. We don't like it, but I can tell you these birds are are substantially better than the ones that we can get from the hatcheries, even the good hatcheries. They're they're more docile, they're smarter, they're a little bit heavier heavier bodied, um, and and so uh, you know it, it just makes sense that if if you if you move your, your genetic base uh, farther into a uh, a system that resembles what you're what you're wanting out the other end that over time you're going to develop a, a better fit and um, so we are still buying our our meat birds our Cornish cross we're still buying those from commercial hatcheries uh, but we we have definitely uh, moved into a you know uh, an internal uh, sustaining our own you know our own hatch our own chicks and everybody that sees these, uh, they, they want some, we haven't sold any yet. We haven't, because right now we've just, this year is will be the first year that we haven't bought any, uh, pullets, any little chick pullets from a hatchery. So we're just now getting to us to a scale, uh, that, that hopefully we'll be able to produce all of our own, all of our own chicks. And frankly, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the skill of it, you know, you would think that these little incubators with all their little computer microchips and humidity and, and controlled egg things, you know, you'd think they'd be all uh, perfect, but, but they're not, there's, there's still a, there's still an art to it. For sure. Do you have any problems to any problems, not problems? Wow. Do you have any thoughts about maybe trying to breed your own meat birds? And I get, you know, like we've got, let's say 28 chickens and I'm, I'm not the chicken person here. Trust me. I'm not the chicken person, but I can see the difference between, you know, uh, between some, some of the crossbreeds that we have running around and what a straight run Cornish cross does and how fast they gain. 
there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, those Cornish grouse birds are definitely a much, much more efficient feed converter. Um, but it also seems like they're just don't have as much going on upstairs as, you know, some <laughs> of the red birds or the barred rocks or yeah. Yeah. anything else. Oh, for sure. Well, uh, so I, I think the answer is two things. One is obviously, you know, we're hatching, we're hatching our own pullets. So if you're going to, if you need, you know, if you need uh, 3000 pullets a year, well, guess what? You're also going to have 3000 cockerels. Okay. And, uh, and so we, we have the cockerels, the, the little uh, male chicks. And so we, we have raised them up and, uh, we sell them everything from pet food to as gourmet, you know, gourmet like heritage breeds birds, uh, which you know is probably not exactly true, but but they're like that, and um, and so and, and certainly you know we we like those birds. So um, so if if we couldn't get them from a hatchery, we could certainly eat eat the roosters, as we say, we could eat the brothers of the sisters, <laughs> and and uh, so you know that's certainly an option. But beyond that, uh, until then, um, we do we we do get chicks. We do get the meat birds from a hatchery, and those birds uh, are are more saleable in today's market. So you know, one of the things about marketing is that you you can't be but so weird. You know, you can be you can be a nudist and you can be a Buddhist, but if you're a nudist Buddhist, I mean, you're just too weird. No, nobody nobody believes you, and so. Even among the, you know, the the foodie gourmands, the the foodie aficionados, um, by and large, they still want that nice big double breast. They still want that nice big plump chicken, and um, and so we we just from a from a, a marketing standpoint, we continue to patronize the, you know, the uh, what we call the the race car NASCAR high octane double breasted a bird. Uh, we still maintain that just from a market share. If if that if that became unavailable, then we'd go back to the we'd go back to the uh, the, the roosters of the, the 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 brothers of the sisters. That, and that all makes sense. That totally makes sense. And I I think that dual purpose breeding is starting to come back in style, not just for cattle. You know, we need to start breeding our cattle to do better on forage, higher milk production numbers on, you know, on less. And, sure. you know, I can, I'm not familiar at all with hogs. Like, I, I don't do hogs. My experience with hogs was limited to uh, the mid-90s when I was working for a neighboring um, crop farmer. Uh, they grow, I think they still grow certified seed wheat, but they had some pigs. And this was... Uh, this was like the 94, 95 timeframe right before mm -hmm. the bottom fell out of the hog market. And yeah. I remember farrowing houses. I remember having to go clean out farrowing houses and, you know, remove, remove dead sows, remove dead piglets. And, um, that's probably one of the core memories for me. And that's one of the reasons that I don't think I'd ever really want to be involved in any sort of hog type system or hog type CAFO. So, All right, well, I boxed myself in a corner. Um, so tell me about your pigs, since we're talking about pigs. Yeah, so so our pigs, you know, obviously, they don't they don't come from a KFO, and we buy our piggies 
from people who breed on pasture. They farrow, they actually farrow on pasture, or at least in 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 uh in in pods uh where there are numerous sows or you know where uh everything can run around. And uh so you know it's it's certainly not a not a crate, not a confinement house, not a a, a factory situation. And uh we don't farrow here at our farm. Uh again, you know, we, we don't have anything against farrowing. It's just that you know, our farm gets somewhere close to 15,000 visitors a summer, a year, and um, and a lot of a lot of kids and a lot of moms that are stuck on their self on their, uh, you know, iPhone while their little, you know, two year old climbs up into the pen with the sow, steps on a little baby pig and then the sow eats the eats the child. And next week there's a big, you know, front page article about, you know, local toddler eaten by sow at local you know farm. We don't want that kind of publicity. And so we buy our piggies from farms that don't have visitors and we supply them a nice steady price and, and keep them in business. And we get to put all of our attention on production stock. So we get we get wiener piggies, you know, 40 to 50 pounds, and then we raise them on up to, to slaughter size. And so uh, and, and of course, we raise we raise them on pasture, um, you know, in the, in the dead of winter. Yes, they are inside, but they're on large you know, they have large areas to run deep bedding that they can dig in and burrow down in they get they get hay every day they can eat half of it and poop on the other half and and so it's a it's a very um sanitary clean smelling kind of uh situation and so yeah pigs pigs uh, uh you know they definitely in in their in their worst smelling in their worst smelling scenario they are the worst of all the livestock that's for sure uh, but 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 it doesn't have to be that way. You you can put a carbonaceous diaper under them with wood chips and 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 sawdust and straw and stuff, and uh, and and soak up all that bedding, and it can be it can be very uh, very enjoyable. For sure. Well, do you think too many people get caught up in the mechanics of your message and not see the forest for the trees, trying to replicate what? what you're doing in some part without understanding the why or the whole system? Uh, well, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the, the why the, the big picture nuance is, um, is kind of hard to grasp sometimes. <laughs> and so, so what you do is you, you pick some ingredients, you pick some ingredients and you start baking the cake and uh sometimes you don't know why you're baking the cake and uh you know that that can be a, that can be an issue but uh often on on your way in the mechanics you start you start seeing the new the nuances of why and so uh, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a you know a catch 22 what comes first uh do you just do the right thing and then you and then you kind of learn why or do you have to understand all the the philosophical whys uh, you know, before you do the right thing, there's, there's probably a little bit of, you know, a little bit of both there. Uh, um, but I, I guess, I guess the thing, uh, if there's, if there's one thing that on, on that topic, uh, and I don't mean this to sound, you know, uh, proudful or anything like that, but, you know, we have been at this a long, long time. And, um, and, you know, when I go visit somebody that's, that's been successful at something for a long, long time, uh, the first thing I want to do is um, is assume that 
that they've worked out a lot of the, a lot of the things, but you'd be amazed how many people they come. They don't, they've never raised a chicken. They come and they take one look. Well, I'd change this. I'd change that. I'd change this. No. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's better. It's better to just duplicate first and become efficient, uh, efficient at our system before I think before you start making uh, major changes, like, like a lot of people, oh, how do you you move those shelters? Man, that's just so much work and labor to move those shelters all the time. And so people start, you know, trying to uh, make great big ones you move with a tractor or or uh, put wheels on all of them or automate them or, or some such thing. And the fact is, you know, there aren't there probably aren't of all the thousands of people who have done this. There probably aren't. I'm going to say 10 in the whole country that have duplicated our benchmarks, our benchmarks of efficiency. Um, you know, that so that requires you having you know the right kind of construction on a shelter, moving them the right direction, having the 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 right kind of dolly to move them, the right kind of technique to move them, the right kind of thinking about feed and water, and is it empty or full when you move them? I mean, the time of day to move them. Uh, there, there are there are, are a ton of nuances around this, and um, and so you know uh, we. I mean, I'm open to changes, and we've certainly tried. When somebody comes along and says, "Hey, you know, I think I think we've got a better idea. we've 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 built them out of different material, we've made different dimensions, we've we've tried big ones and little ones, and 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 all sorts of things, and you know, we just uh, we just come back to our little simple a little simple design and and move them by hand, and you don't have to go to the gym for exercise. That is one of the things about doing you know quote regenerative ag is you're outside a lot more less relying on machinery and doing a lot more physical type labor and it helps keep you in shape you know when i i haven't done any strip grazing since 2020 but when i did it in 2020 and 20 or in 19 and 20 oh man you know getting out and walking 15 18 000 steps first thing in the morning yeah you know that helps keep you going all day kind of helps put you in a positive mindset, a little physical activity outside in the sunshine, whether it's raining or sleeting or fog or snowing. We're out there. Um, I will not build electric fence in a thunderstorm though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's very wise. I've, I've been, uh, I've had lightning come in on me a couple of times over the years and yeah, it's not fun to build electric fence in a thunderstorm. So one of the things I think I saw you say is, the farm to table movement focuses on blaming the consumer for the problem in the food system. And whether or not that's your quote or not, it's, it's, it's something I think needs some discussion. Yes. The consumers get a vote with their food dollar, but I don't think that they're to blame for the problems in the current system. Um, well, this is a this is a good matter of discussion. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, farmers produce what consumers want. They've always done that. the the the, the market The market drives the production, and so uh, if consumers want convenience food and hot pockets and squeezable Velveeta cheese, uh, that's what that's what they get. And um, and so until you know, unless and until consumers start making the connection between their health and their food and their health, their food and the landscape, 
you know, farmers aren't going to make that difference. And I, and I think I think I can say this with some authority because at our farm, you know, we serve we service institutions, restaurants, you know, thousands of families. And um, but our weak link today, if you ask me, well, what's your what's your weak link at Polyface? What what's your weak link? My answer is very quick. Our our weak link is is market, is market. Uh, you know, we could we could double tomorrow. If we and I'm not I'm not whining I'm not don't read read more into this I'm not whining or complaining I'm just stating a fact that that um, that we could we could double production tomorrow with our existing land base and and personnel, um, uh, you know without without doing much the 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 weak link is marketing we we need people to. Uh, you know, to connect the dots that when they look at their plate, so, uh, you know, I've kind of developed this kind of uh, a metaphor. So when you sit down and you look at your plate, squint your eyes, look through the food. Some farm on the other side produced that food. Some, some landscape put that food on your plate. As you squint your eyes and you look through that food, what do you see? What kind of landscape do you see? And we start having to, we, we start, when you do that, you begin thinking intentionally about, you know, about what you're doing. Now, I'm not trying to make a cult and saying, you know, it's it's a sin to ever eat a, a, you know, a Snickers bar, okay? I like a Snickers bar as well as anybody else, all right? But it, it, it is probably a sin to eat one every single day. Uh, and, and so, and so. That's what I'm getting at, um, and, and I like the 80-20 rule. You know, do 80 right, and 20 gives, and that 20 gives you a, a, enough that you can go to your, you know, niece's birthday party and enjoy the the Walmart cake, you know, uh, um, and not feel guilty about it. And so, so uh, I, I'm looking for those 80-20 consumers who do connect the dots and are ready to take take their intentional, you know, their intentional um, uh, landscape. Their, their intentional landscape touch to that level. Okay. So uh, circling back, you said the market drives production. And I agree with that. But I think that our market, quote market, and what we're talking about here is the American food consuming public. Yeah. yeah. Um, they've been manipulated and lied to by labels. They've been, I, I feel like they've been manipulated and lied to by label claims on packages you know it goes back to things that that i've kind of been talking about in other episodes like enriched wheat flour okay so we mill the germ off the wheat to take away all the good crap and then we're going to enrich it with other crap from somewhere else where does that other stuff come from and sure the american public doesn't think that's important they just want to see that big claim up in the corner enriched or fortified with you know 13 vitamins and minerals so, you know, these labels and all these label claims for a small operator like you and I, like it's hard for it's, I'm not going to say it's hard. It's easy for me to go to the meat packer and have them put my brand, my name on the meat package label, right? Mm -hmm. That's easy. But if I want to make any nutritional claims or, right. or anything other than this is a piece of beef, mm -hmm. I've got to go to the food police and show them this is what right. I want to say. This is my documentation that says that that this is not bullshit, and yep. this is the claim I want to make on my package. Yep, yep, yep. 
That's right. That's right. Uh, and and uh, and those and those nutritional those customized nutritional uh, claims are very very expensive. You know, uh, twenty thousand dollars a piece, for example, just just to get just to get one. And so uh, so that's where you um, you know you you have to use your messaging uh, to overcome that. So all all I, all I will. Um, I will say in this space is every person, every person is responsible for the, for the, for the teachers and for the belief system they embrace. And, you know, what you're, what you're bringing up here is the, it's the, it's the bane of the human existence. You know, why, why, when we were starting our farm here in 1961, Dad brought in every agriculture expert, both public and private. Some he paid, some were just public people. Said, "How do I make a living on this farm?" Every single one of them said, "Build silos, borrow more money, plant corn, graze graze the wood lot, uh, you know, and use chemical fertilizer." Now that was the advice that they were giving to every farmer out there. Dad didn't buy it. Why didn't Dad buy it? I mean, that's the question of the age, isn't it? You know, um, uh, why does one person, why does one person look at that label and say, this is a bunch of, this is a bunch of crap. And, and, and the next person, maybe the next person says, well, I don't even believe labels. You know, uh, if there's something on it that I, that I can't pronounce, you know, I don't get that kind of food. Um, and another person says, well, you know, as much as I can, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get food with a face. You know, know your farmer, know your food, kind of thing. Um, and and so I guess what I'm what I'm trying to I I hate victimhood. Well, I can't. I just I just don't know. I I can't do this. I can't cook because I just don't have enough time. Meanwhile, you know, they're sitting there watching five Netflix shows a night, and I just don't have time to cook. I mean, the average American male right now, Brian, the average American male spends. 20 hours a week, uh, uh, this is the average American male between 25 and 35 years old, spends 25 hours, I'm sorry, 20, 20 hours a week playing video games. So so here, here is the, the average male between 25 and 35 playing video games. So I'm looking at that saying, so who's responsible for knowing something? If you took those 20 hours and you listened to the you know to the um ranching reboot podcast if you you know if you if you spent that time um well doing anything more productive than playing a video game listening to your books listening to other podcasts sure, sure absolutely yeah but i'm 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 a guest on yours so i'm going to promote yours <laughs> um the, the the point the point is the point is who's responsible Who's responsible for my body of belief and knowledge? And it, it's not some. And, and I I think that this, uh, well, the yes, is there an orchestrated whatever conspiracy effort to make ignorant? Cons Absolutely, the industry loves ignorant people. The, the government loves ignorant people. Okay, uh, power loves ignorant people. There's a lot of money to be made with ignorant people. Okay, I, I, I totally get that. But you and I. For some for some reason, you and I have have exposed ourselves. We didn't take 
the whatever the red pill uh you know we you and i have 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 pushed ourselves to expose ourselves to the road less traveled by to the to the different drummer i mean there's a you know there's a ton of little things you know cliches that you can put to, to go the path uh, the unorthodox path and we have found it uh um you know satisfying i will tell you this that in the early i'm going to say um i'm going to say in the in the 80s and 90s almost everybody that came to visit our farm was a you know basically a, a liberal democrat tree hugger gay a worshiping uh you know uh tree hugger okay then guess what along came the homeschooling movement and the homeschooling movement suddenly shifted our customer base and people who came and were interested in what we were doing yeah we still have we we still have the we love them you know the the, the liberal uh, uh the tree hugger uh, earth muffin but now we have this huge huge contingency of very conservative uh a lot of them are you know a, a church oriented you know very uh, uh, homeschoolers and and what i think happens is each of us each of us has this, you know, this kind of path that we're on. And if you're on a very conventional path, at some point in your life, you're going to intersect with something unconventional. It might be medical. It might be agricultural. It might be food. It, 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 it might be investment. It might be financial. It might be educational or recreational. But you're going to intersect with something that's unorthodox. How do you respond to that? You say, oh, that's that, you know, those are those are the stupid people. You know, th those are those are idiot people. Or do you say, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into this a little bit. Let me, let me try to find this. And what I saw was that the homeschooling movement spawned, it, it awakened. So so people got fed up with the public schools, they started homeschooling, and 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 they were so happy with what they saw with this, even though it was more work and more effort and it wasn't convenient. They said, "Well, I like I like what I see. You know, my my kids aren't bringing home a bunch of bad habits. My kid, you know, my kids are 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 self confident. You know, and and they have interest. And, and and they said, well, that was really satisfying. I wonder what else I'm missing. Next thing you know, they've got a garden, then a grain mill, a milk cow, and they're and they're canning tomatoes, and you know, and they're going down this this other this other path, uh, other things. And so, and then the next thing you know, they're going to an acupuncturist and a chiropractor." And taking fewer medicines, you know, uh, and, and growing some herbs outside their back door, you know, and, and so so it's that kind of response when you intersect with the unorthodox. It's that response that determines: Are you going to be blessed with additional discovery, or are you going to shut that door and say, "Not, nah, I'm just going to go the, I'm just going to swim downstream, and it'll all be easier." You hit on some great points there. Um... So my, my wife now, our girl, my girlfriend at the time, homeschooled her daughter through middle school. Mm -hmm. And just like you said, she didn't bring home a bunch of ha bad habits from everybody else's kids. Right. Another word I usually throw in there, but I'll leave it out for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and then when she got to high school, she was much better mentally yes. prepared yes. and emotionally prepared to deal with, you know, with all the crap that happens in high school during those years. Yep. And I, 
she's an awesome adjusted human. Uh, she's at Kansas State University in the architecture program, and she's mm -hmm. supporting herself through college. I mean, through a job and, and through scholarships. Wow. Yeah, I think it's, she's an awesome kid. And I don't, there's no doubt in my mind that she would not be on the path she's on if she would have gone to public school for all of those years. And it almost seems like I, I, I kind of just got this idea, and it's not only about half formed, that homeschooling is a gateway drug to li libertarianism and homesteading food culture. When yes. Yes, absolutely. And if you if you go to a a current uh, home you know homeschooling convention, you know all every state has their homeschooling conventions. If you go, you know where you people buy curriculums and all this stuff, and, and you will see everything there from from alternative alternative uh, medical insurance to alternative uh, finance to alternative. To, to libertarian type politics, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, now it, it has, it has broadened. And, and that's why I think this idea, and you know what, I'm so appreciative of you. I've never said this before. So that, that's indicative of a, of a great question. When you tease out a kind of a new nuance of thinking, but I have never, I've never articulated that idea of of a pathway of life that intersects with the unorthodox. Let's just let's just let that let that think for a minute. Your pathway of life it intersects with the unorthodox. What do you do with that? And goodness, in a time of incredible uh, censorship and shutting down the minority view, that is a that is a profound question for every single person to ask. How do I respond when my life intersects with the unorthodox? Very good question. And I think a lot of people are not prepared for that intersection of the unorthodox and they fall back into a comfortable, predictable, easy pattern because easy, comforting answers, even though they're a lie, are a lot easier to swallow than any sort of uncomfortable truth that what you've been taught your whole life is wrong or everything or most everything you know about the world and how the world works is wrong because you've been lied to your whole life by the people that are in charge of the system. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I mean, peer, peer dependency, you know, peer dependency is, uh, you know, affects, affects everyone. And um, I've been very clear uh, over the years that one of my greatest blessings was growing up in a home that, that actually embraced being different. Uh, most people are trying to wear the right fashion, uh, uh, you know, invest in the right places, buy the right things, um, you know, have the right entertainment stuff, go to the right places in vacation, you know, all that sort of thing. And, and our family uh, truly embraced being different. And I'm so now I'm so grateful. And what happened to your daughter, you know, um, a, a, a part of that is is adoption of value systems. You know, uh, value systems are like muscles. They come on, they start as a little infant and they get and they get stronger and stronger. And generally value systems are not in place until about nine years old. Uh, it, it, obviously it differs, you know, some, some get it earlier, some are later, but, but around nine is where you're kind of your, your, your conscience, what's right, what's wrong, what, you know what, what's tempting and what's 
what's tempting that's enticing and what's tempting that's, oh, I would never do that. Those kinds of things actually begin forming or, or actually um, uh, kids can formulate those somewhere nine, 10 years old. And so your daughter, by homeschooling early, by the time she got what thrown thrown to the dogs in school, she was solid. She was solid. She knew who she was. She knew what she believed. And and so that's why you saw her just, you know, with a with a true north navigate through that, you know, that peer that that peer pressure and all the temptations. She just navigated through. She's gonna be a she's gonna be a fantastic um, you know, lady. And obviously, obviously you, you know, you see that. And so it's that it's that value system. Uh, You know, it takes it takes time to develop. And it develops, you know, like you said, it starts to develop when they're about nine, 10 years old, which really corresponds with fifth grade, which out here out here in the near west or Midwest, whatever you want to call it. Uh That's when they start middle school. Right. 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 Yeah. We thought it was really important to you know, it, it, to control the influences in her life in that really critical period. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I grew up, not grew up. Um, I had experiences working with some other young people that were homeschooled, you know, that were in their late teens, early twenties, and even in their mid teens. And they were just, you know, they were respectful. They knew how to talk to an adult. They knew how to deal with an adult. And that mm-hmm. comes from during that critical period from, you know, nine to 15 mm-hmm. of going with your parent yeah, and observing how they talk to people, go with them to a business deal and observe how they do a business deal. Like right. those kind of things are invaluable at that age, but in the public school system, it's non-existent. It's completely non-existent and that's, right. that's, that's right. a problem. And during that time frame, you know, children are learning things, you know, they're discovering things about their bodies, they're discovering things about society, they're learning, you know, new words. Well, you want to be cool at school, right? So you want to go tell everybody this cool thing that your bigger brother told you, or that, you know, big sister told you, or that you you accidentally saw, Yeah, you know, might be above your age. You want to be cool, so you're going to go tell all your friends. And it, without, without really having the mental capacity, maybe to understand some of these things you're seeing, and without an adult around to explain them to you, because like, you know, let's be honest, like everybody knows you're a libertarian. Everybody that listens to my podcast by now, I'm pretty sure they've got a clue. If not, Hey, I'm a libertarian <laughs> voted that way for over 20 years. But I don't, I, I don't like to get overly, you know, I don't like to really get political because everybody has a choice. And I think a lot of libertarians, maybe give some of us some of the rest of us a bad name and hell maybe we're in that camp too and don't Mm -hmm. even know it Mm -hmm. but you know it's about freedom and personal responsibility which is why libertarianism and the homeschool movement kind of play hand in hand and it's also teaching a lot of Mm -hmm. Mm self-reliance so i forgot where i was going with that one again um, so as, as we breed these cultures of self-reliance, you know, we're starting to see more and more homesteaders, more and more people that are very interested in taking, taking ownership of their food and of their health. And as we start seeing 
let's just say it big money or tech money fleeing the cities fleeing the west coast and they're coming to areas where land is cheaper yep and that's pretty much mostly a lot of the area between you and i how do you see um well i see it becoming more and more difficult to make a living in agriculture because land prices keep going up input prices keep going up labor prices like wow they're just totally out of control and i don't think that any current system adequately addresses the land and labor economics of food production in a natural setting so i guess the other piece of that is we've so heavily subsidized production agriculture for so long corn wheat and beans you know the 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 three major major commodity crops okay we can use corn to make ethanol then we can take those distillers grains and we can feed them to cows and they do fantastic it's very difficult to compete in a low input system on let's just say native range against the guy that's got an ethanol plant next door and then he gets that subsidized waste stream from the ethanol plant that how do you see that yeah, well, you, you uh, you've got you got several threads there, and so uh, I think you and I would agree that whenever the government intervenes in a marketplace, it skews it skews what Adam Smith uh, called the invisible hand of the market, um, to, you know, to go where it wants to go, and so I certainly don't have any problem with you know with ethanol. I don't have any problem with. Um, you know, actually, I don't really have a big problem with growing corn or beans. Um, I certainly don't have any problem with growing cows on on pasture. But the, the problem is when the government starts throwing uh, money at one at one side or the other, it skews. It, it, it has a ripple effect of skewing throughout the marketplace, all the things related to that item. And so I would like to. Uh, I would like to eliminate every single manipulative thing from subsidy to insurance to grants to anything. In, in fact, you know, in my perfect world, I just abolish the USDA, but I know that's not going to happen. But if, if we if we could eliminate if we could eliminate the, the the skewing in the market and that includes that includes who can sell and who can't, for example, you know, if you came to my farm, looked around, asked around, and 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 as two consenting, as two voluntary consenting adults, we wanted to uh, transact a uh, a pig that I'd butchered, or some bologna I'd made, or some chicken broth that I'd made. I can't sell it to you without a government-approved label and facility that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, and so the result is that there are there are probably tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurial farmers of every scale big to small who are ready to service to to service their neighborhoods and communities with good food who can't because the food police regulate them out of business because the 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 food safety laws are scale prejudicial 
they, they are much easier to comply with if you're big than if you're small. And so that becomes a very market manipulative thing. If to enter the market, you have to be at a certain scale to enter the market, that then prohibits entrepreneurs and embryonic startups from being able to enter the market, which 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 obviously skews the the, the pricing. So you know, I, I'm totally with you that that the that the system, if you will, the system is definitely stacked against um, against ecologically based. Uh, uh, certainly small scale based and and direct market based. Uh, if we take those three, the the, the ecology, the um, the scale, and the and the direct market, it, it, it's skewed against all of those things, and and therefore makes a very uh, unfair playing field. So that that's one element to it. But the second thing I think that's important. So so you look at that and say, well, you know, my lands. How, how am I going to change that? You know, I'm a Stephen Covey, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, seven habits of highly effective people. One of them is don't spend your time worrying about the stuff that you can't, that you can't influence. Let's, fo let's, let's focus on the things that you can. So what can I influence? And so what I can influence is the way I farm. And so, um, so what's happening is there is a tremendous amount of abandoned land right now. Uh, as farmers age out, you know, the average farmer is now 60 years old. So a lot of land is being inherited by kids that, that don't want to farm. Um, or it's it's still owned by very, very elderly people that are that are trying to figure out how to get out. And, and the problem is that when um, when the the impet, when the the price of entry is so big that young people can't get in then old people can't get out. So both generations are stuck here, one wanting in, they can't, the other one wanting ex exit and they can't get off and, and they're both stuck here. So one of, the, one of the, uh, the, the, the options that we're seeing and it's being used more and more is, is using portable infrastructure to manage land. So in, in other words, rather than having rather than having a, a feedlot, for example, to finish beef, you finish them on grass using electric fence, a, a portable electric fence. Guess what? That can be done on land you don't own with portable infrastructure so that if your if your arrangement goes south, if your deal, you know, if your deal breaks, if you have a divorce, you can easily take all your portable electric fence and and, and a water trough and you, you can you, know, you can take that somewhere else. Uh, as opposed to a stationary, you know, a typical stationary barn feedlot, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and so, you know, our pastured poultry, all the infrastructure, you know, the infrastructure is portable. Pastured pigs, it's portable. Turkeys, it's portable. Um, and so we're seeing now uh, a lot of young farmers accessing this newly available land from aging out farm situations with a with a mobile a mobile uh, um, arrangement that allows them to get a, a toehold and a foothold in agriculture without owning land. In fact, the people that I read after uh, take a very strong position that land ownership and farming are two completely different businesses. They're two completely separate businesses. One of my mentors, uh, Alan Nation, founder of Stockman Grass Farmer. Um, he said that the U.S. is moving toward a European system where people with money buy land as a de 
expensive measure because land tends to not you know not go down in value over time and and so so the land is 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 being owned by as you said this money coming out of the cities okay um now some of those want to farm most of them don't have a clue what they're you know what they're doing and some of them are looking they're actually looking we, we've helped about six people uh actually find property for us to manage so they now have their their what i call their agrarian bunker if the wheels fall off um and and we're able to expand our farming operation on land that's cheap that we don't own as as a collaboration with city money city money being injected into rural property as a safe haven and so so um yeah definitely the the land price ratio uh uh the the ratio of price to production value is completely different now than it was you know 60 years ago uh you know when mom and dad bought this place it was $90 an acre and a feeder calf sold for $180 and you could raise half of one on an acre so that was a $90 of production and a market price of $90 an acre that's a one to one market price to annual production ratio today the land is $7,000 an acre and that feeder calf is $700 you can still raise half of it on an acre, so that's 350. So instead of a one-to-one -one ratio, it's a 20-to-one ratio. And that's why that's why you can't do what grandpa did. That's a good way to put it. And okay, so in my context, where I am, I'm I'm on the very northern northeast edge of what we call the Red Hill. So it's it's still native range because it was too steep and and too rough to farm. Uh, of the acres that I have, less than less than seven percent of it was ever broken out with a plow, and the last of it was put back to grass in the late '80s. So I feel pretty fortunate that I have I have a resource that, as long as I steward it correctly, will be there year after year after year after right. year after year. Right. But I think in the context of okay, what are most of my you know I'm going to do it the way Grandpa did it. Just a few miles north of me, get up into Pratt County, everything is tillage. Almost everything is tillage up there. Lots of circle pivot, center pivot irrigation. And I hear that a lot. Well, this is what we're doing because this is how Grandpa did it. Grandpa farmed here, so I'm going to keep farming here, and this is how he did it. And in a lot of those situations, you'll have somebody that's farming and their family's been farming for, I don't know, 50, 80, 100 years. And they're farming some of their own land, but their mm -hmm. own land is the minority. They're farming for, you know, other landowners, they're a tenant, you know, they're on crop share, whatever. Those systems incentivize, those systems and those relationships tend to incentivize production, 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 production at all costs, because it's yield, you know, dollars per acre, the landowner wants to get their check at the end of the year, right? The farmer's got to sure. be able to stay in business. Sure. But that completely ignores any of the ecological or environmental costs in that style of production. Um, so I can't remember where it was we talked about it. It might be in the next episode. But we talk about like soil erosion. Like, so like, just, here's the quick math is, the average production commodity field 
in the United States is going to lose roughly five tons of topsoil per acre. Five tons of topsoil per acre is about as thick that's as this sheet of paper. Yeah, is that per year? Yeah, five tons per an acre a year. And that's roughly a sheet of paper. That's, how, that's the thickness of a sheet of paper on an acre. Now, I know where there's a quarry around. I know somebody's got a dump truck. Be happy to sell you all the dirt you want at $10 a ton, and that truck's probably going to cost two to $250 an hour to run. So why are farmers letting their most valuable asset wash down our creeks and rivers and fill up our ponds and dams? You know, if, we, if it's minimum $50 an acre replacement cost for that soil, and as a farmer, you realize I get to take sun and water and all these chemicals that my salesman sold me and these really high priced seeds that this other salesman sold me and put it in this soil and it'll grow. The part of that that they think they're missing is the soil. And I don't think that there's a farmer alive. I don't think there's a farmer in the United States that could afford to put $50 worth of soil back on their field every year. Uh, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. And, and of course, you know, that, that country where you are, uh, was broken long, long after where I am here in Virginia, you know, where I am, by the time we got to our farm, uh, somewhere between three and five feet of topsoil had washed off. And, and there were, you know, there were many areas on our farm when we, I mean, we, we, we measured one 16 foot deep gully in other words from the bottom to the to the rim on top 16 foot deep gully you know how much soil that is and and we had those and still do so uh, many of them uh, they're 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 now they're now forested we planted trees on them uh they're not eroding anymore but the gullies are still there you can still I can take you there and we can walk walk across these gullies you know on these hillsides and and I'm always thinking when I see those what were, what were those people thinking? You know, they were good Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, and they were going and, you know, putting money in the offering plate to send to a mission in Africa or, you know, India or Pakistan. Meanwhile, their, their, their entire, the, the entire uh, responsibility of their stewardship was washing down the river. What were they thinking? And uh, I've, I've, I've wrestled with that a long time. And I, I think it's just because, well, Sir Albert Howard, Sir Albert Howard, who wrote an agricultural testament, basically, you know, is considered the godfather of 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 the modern, you know, sustainable ag movement, uh, because he, you know, his in his lifetime of work, he developed the scientific recipe for, you know, for for composting, aerobic composting. He said an agricultural testament written in 1943 or published in 1943. He said it is the temptation of every civilization to take what nature spent thousands of years creating and convert it to cash. I believe that's right. Yeah. And, and, and I think, I think it's just like, it's like ero erosion and so many things. I mean, I mean, erosion, uh, erosion of the money supply. I mean, look, look, look at, you know, isn't, isn't somebody concerned that in the last 12 months, you know, our dollar lost like four, 13 percent of its purchasing power. So your savings, your 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 hundred thousand um, uh, dollar savings that you had are now only worth you know uh, eighty five thousand dollars. That's erosion. 
but 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 as but as as a culture you know it happens it happens um whatever you know slow enough we we we, we see any road well you start talking about erosion we we see erosion in our nutrition we see erosion in our in our health robustness look at the you know uh in in our mental health look at the teen suicide rate um there is erosion in in all sorts of places and and i think the 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 problem with the word with, with erosion is that it indicates a change that is that is slow enough that we that it's not catastrophic enough to see we we only respond to things when they become catastrophic and unless it's catastrophic we don't respond and so as as you said it's easier just to go along you know just to whatever do tomorrow what you did today right you know um uh you know routine is routine is is fun um and so and so so erosion uh is just slow enough that it doesn't excite excite response and i think that's the way farmers view this i mean we got you know whoa we got the bills paid another year you know and that's that's basically the that's basically the mentality and it's it's very very unfortunate but but again but again i agree with you I, i mean i think i think that the you know that the role that all these government programs and, and and manipulative picking winners what they do i mean that if, if my cow dies there's no there's no uh, uh usda uh, agriculture insurance to protect me from my cow dying but if grasshoppers eat my corn there is that, that that's an unfair advantage to the corn grower versus the versus the, the cow versus the the guy that's running his cows on grass a wildfire came through right now and burned up all my grass. Mm-hmm. I'd have to figure that out. Wow. Uh, I, wow. I have a neighbor that's got more cows than I have mm-hmm. in basically a feedlot at their house. Yep. A big yep. hay pile. Mm-hmm. Same fire comes through and wipes out their hay pile. Guess what? I mean, after all the donated hay comes in, they get money thrown at them to go replace their commodity hay. But they won't even think about looking at my grasslands. It'll be six months later by the time they come out to even talk to me about it, and I'll be in the middle of the growing season. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, well, where's the damage? Well, the damage was the two months that I had to figure out an alternate feeding arrangement for my cows until I grew grass. Yeah. Yeah. So back, back to government. You said, uh, you know, some of the comments you made, and I'll say this, government sets the barrier to entry. You know, they, they set a fairly high bar barrier to entry, no matter what you want to get, whether it's a commercial kitchen, uh, you know, uh, killing your yeah. own chickens, killing your own cows. That's a fairly high barrier to entry. But at the same time, they, they create this barrier to entry that keeps a lot of the small players out. They also don't create a standard of excellence. The problem with government standards is that is the minimum performance standard that you must meet. Not the maximum, not the greatest, not even something that's pretty good. It's the minimum standard. So I feel like we have a lot of these, you know, multinational companies 
that you know conglomerates and not just not just the big four meat companies the the ag chemical companies the seed companies i mean they're all kind of intertwined anyway they're not performing to the highest standard they can they're performing to the minimum standard that the government will allow them to get away with and what kind of comes to mind is um, there's a presentation that I set through about small meat plants and there's the there's the test to pass program and the test to fail type program and what some of these smaller operators are finding is if they use a test to fail program versus a test to pass program they end up with a much higher quality product but they spend a lot of money on testing so what I mean by that is when you are testing to fail you test and you don't find any contamination in your plant you keep testing you keep testing you keep testing until you do find some and then you can go root the cause out of that contamination and put processes in place so it doesn't happen again when you're testing just for the minimum standard and doing the minimum amount of tests that you're required to do you know for the year in order to keep your you know whatever kind of certification you have, whether it's on a packing plant or a commercial kitchen or a secondary processing facility. Right. A lot of them will just do the minimum amount of tests required by law. And then when they do get a, then when they do get a test that fails or detects some contaminant or contagion, they have to recall a bunch of product because they didn't catch it. Like, oh, we've maybe had this problem for three months. Well, we better recall a half a million pounds of meat and throw it away. That's nothing for Tyson, JBS, or any of the other big nationals. For a small plant, that's death. So I think these small plants are in more of a regime where they're testing to fail to find their own internal process controls because they can't afford a recall. Then as that business scales up and becomes a for-profit business, somebody in that board is going to look at, well, why are we spending all this money on testing and we're not ever failing anything? We need to cut that back to increase our profits. Yeah, uh, that's a, that's an interesting, that's an interesting take. And I think you're, I think you're basically right. You know, we, uh, we co-own a small federal inspected slaughterhouse here that we use for our beef and pork and stuff. And, um, and, and for sure the, the standards that we have in place are, substantially higher it's it's far cleaner than a, a big outfit um and and you're exactly right it's partly because we can't afford we can't afford to shut down for a week uh we can't afford a, a recall and, and and we're and we're not we're not connected to be able to handle the the politics of being able to deal with those kinds of things and so um so yeah we're so so the point is that as a business, we are far more vulnerable. We're far more vulnerable to a to a shock than than the the, the great big outfit that is politically connected, um, and and can you know and can get can get stuff handled easier just be just because of their because they're they're politically connected. I mean, you got to realize when, when you see when you see a big recall in the marketplace, there were a lot of negotiations, a lot of negotiations in the back room as to just how that was going to roll out. That that's not just 
some some uh, whatever, some inspector, some on, honest government agent saying, here's what you got to do. No, there's there are senators and congressmen and legislative aides and all sorts of, of people involved when it's when it's a big outfit, when it's a little outfit. No, they just throw the book at you because, you know, you're not you're not politically connected. But, uh, you know, when you're when you're a big outfit, you, uh, you know, you. You suppose some of those senators are getting involved in that process because they're shareholders in those meat companies? Well, of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and and that's why, I mean, the whole, the whole regulatory, you know, the whole regulatory environment is what we call a revolving door. You know, people from the industry go into the regulatory environment, right? I mean, I mean, the fact that the fact that the, um, what the, the head of the head of Pfizer, you know, the head of Pfizer is now in charge of this, uh, of the COVID vaccine program from the government i mean it, you know it's it's a uh or, or you know Mike, michael taylor became the the food czar under obama well, michael taylor his career was with monsanto he was the lead attorney in bringing genetically modified organisms to the world and now he's our he's our food czar uh, i mean really uh so that's the that you know that's the kind of thing it, it, it it's incestuous it, it, it it's a fraternity of incestuous uh players that locks out politically and 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 uh, practically the the smaller player and that and that's why all these things are written scale prejudicially and uh, and so that you know that that creates a that creates again a very unfair it, it would be like for for the for 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 the listeners here maybe it'd be good to say i mean we're you know here we are uh in at the end of the nfl season so can you imagine if in order to play a football game you you could not do a pickup game in anybody's backyard the only place that you could play football is on a an nfl an official nfl stadium with a paid referee doesn't matter whether you're you know you're a sunday you're a group of sunday school kids that want to play a pickup game of football you know uh a a family outing where all the cousins get together let's go out and play football no 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 you can only play football on an nfl field and with a with a official credentialed uh, referee to referee the game that's what we've got right now in the food system you can only play if if you're on an accredited field with a government referee. That's the only way you can play the game. And can you imagine if we had that kind of system with football? Where would people where would people innovate moves and learn how to handle a football and 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 do plays and have the enjoyment of the football? You know, it, it would. It, where where would the feedstock be to come in to the you know to to the to the players talent yeah to develop the talent and and that's exactly where we are in the food system people like us listen many 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 years ago the government came in they said your outdoor chicken processing is inherently hazardous uh you can't produce a safe chicken if you if you uh if you process the chicken uh in an open air facility well, we had our chickens tested for bacterial contamination. Our chickens averaged 133 
133 cultured whatever bacterial units per milliliter i've already i'm already past my you know my pay grade on it but that's how they measure it ours measured 133 that's what you got to remember uh, of colony forming units and the supermarket birds from the same lab same day same everything tested 3600 3,600. So we've got 3,600 uh, colony forming units versus 133. So, you know, so we weren't, we weren't sterile. We don't want to be sterile, but look, we were 25 times cleaner than what's in the store. Now you would think, you would think that somebody in the food inspection business would say, wow, how can you get chickens that clean? Let's, um, you know, let, let's maybe we ought to change protocols and see if we can get chickens that clean. Um, but it, it didn't, it didn't influence them one iota um, in, in in our in our negotiations and discussions that, that we that we were that much cleaner. And even though we did it without chlorine, and the supermarket chicken had 40, 40 chlorine baths, uh, it was still that much dirtier than ours. And so, you know, these so we have answers. We have answers to the salmonella. We have answers to the E. coli. We have answers to the to the contagion, the pathogens that are in food. I'm saying we we small producers, we pastured poultry, we we unorthodox alternative producers. We have answers. We're the sandlot players. We're the backyard. We're the we're the ones you know uh, out here, you know, uh, 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 innovating and fooling around with this, and. And, and if we if we can't play the game, the game can't advance creatively to solve problems because it can only it can only move at the rate, pace, and creativity of of the bureaucracies, and that's a very slow pace. It's a good segue into talking about some ways to kind of skirt around food police rules in order to. Put, you know, beef, pork, chicken, any other proteins, eggs, or any other farm produce in the hands of consumers. And I, one of my favorite books that you've written is Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes I almost want to wear the title on a medallion around my neck. Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. And, you know, the, the other one, of course, is folks, this ain't normal. Yeah. So, um, how do we how do we deal with the food police? I guess as a small producer that wants to be direct to consumer, which I feel that's kind of what my listenership is represented by is people that uh, want to do more direct to consumer sales. We're looking at trying to get out of the city and come out in a homestead. So. Wow, that's a it's a great it's a great uh, uh, question here. Let me just jump right into it quickly by saying um, that we de we now have John Moody and I, well, whatever three or four years ago, started what we call the Rogue Food Conference. The Rogue Food Conference, and our and our mantra is circumvention, not compliance. There comes a time. There comes a time when tyranny or regulation becomes so stifling, it is actually more efficient to figure out how to circumvent it than how to comply. And we are kind of at that point today. Um, that's a little bit of what led the homeschooling movement. They tried and tried and tried to, to, 
to to work within the public school system. And then somebody said, you know what? Forget it. Let's just circumvent it. Let's do something different. And, and you see that in various things, you know, um, um, throughout history. And so, uh, and so we're at that point in food where, as you described, the the food police for a small direct market uh, producer has become so onerous that we actually we actually might get along better instead of trying to trying to get the license, just forget the license and do something different. So the Rogue Food Conference that we, we've we've had five of them. The sixth one is going to be uh, May May twelve and thirteen here at Polyface, and we invite everybody to come. I get a shameless plug for it. Um, and, and what we're doing is we're putting on the stage people who have figured out how to circumvent the the the, the regulations. So let me just throw a couple of them out there. Um, we're, we're all familiar with uh, community supported agriculture and and the whole uh, you know raw milk herd share that sort of thing the the subscription service so that that is that is kind of the yeah pull it back okay maybe some of us aren't familiar with that can you give us a thirty thousand foot view of the what what you just said the herd share milk share yeah okay so so um, in like in Virginia you can't it's illegal to sell a glass of raw milk you can't sell raw milk and but what you can do is you can invest in a herd and get a herd share. So you can get a, so just like community supported agriculture, CSA, where I uh, I invest in a share of that farm, I pay $500 and that gives me a box of, of, of vegetables every week through, through the summer. The reason that that is not a sale is because there is a shared risk on both producer and buyer so it's not a sale it's an investment so the produce is not a product that you're buying it's a dividend it's a dividend from your investment in other words if you if you buy a a $500 produce CSA for example and grasshoppers come and wipe out the 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 tomatoes and you say hey look i didn't get my tomatoes i, I want my money back the farmer says sorry you didn't buy tomatoes. You invested in my farm. This was a dividend. So there. So, um, so where the government, where the government has control with the food police is in transactions that are seller buyer, not investor dividend receiver. There's a, there's a dramatic difference between buyer seller and investor dividend uh, 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 receiver. I just and, wrote down food as a dividend of land yes. investment. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it's not a buy sell, it's an investment dividend. That that's a, that's a that's a totally different thing. And so that that permutation has been used in the CSAs, it's now used in the in the herd share and it's now been extended uh, uh, uh in a, in a kind of a new refinement into the into the um the PMA which stands for um private membership association private membership association and um and these are basically modeled after country clubs so so a golf country club so think about this in a in a golf country club you join as a member and you then you then receive services as a perk of membership okay so you're not actually buying uh buying services 
you are you are you are receiving benefits from your membership right like you know you don't have to rent a golf cart one's provided for you there's a caddy yeah. there with your clubs somebody's shining yeah. your shoes yeah depending on the, the level and the yeah sure. yeah 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 okay all right so so the pma the the the, the private membership association is a a mechanism now for food that people are are doing we're actually looking at at at, at this uh as a, as a kind of a side a side hustle here at our place um to circumvent all the food laws you don't um and, and your 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 employees become ministers and your so you don't take social security you don't do workman's comp you don't take sales tax uh there's no inspection because it's a completely private membership association and and um a lot of people don't realize there are i think 17 um nonprofits and so this kind of use utilizes the um 501 like 11 and 12 or something like that I, i'm getting over my pay grade here but 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 the there is now an entire network. There is a, a burgeoning network that is developing, that is putting together personal membership associations um, for for people. The the, the one the the um, the the you know the, the catalyst or the the lightning rod for this is Amos Miller. I don't know if you've heard about Amos Miller and his his uh, things. And and so he had a four thousand member uh, PMA in Pennsylvania. And uh, and he's just been through the courts and won. So the PMA is a fairly new new one. Um, there's uh, there's another one. Um, Neethi, Neethi Bali in uh, North Carolina has started a food church. So there uh, you join her food church and you get the benefits of membership, which include getting food. It's totally uninspected. You know, nothing. OK, um, so, you know, I can butcher a beef and sell and sell uh, steaks. And there's no inspection, no requirement whatsoever. Um, if 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 I'm a member of this food church, uh, there's another there's another i there's another idea that's being floated, and that is to to uh, sell a class. So imagine uh, I want to sell I want to sell uh, uh, my my beef directly to people. Okay, so my customers sign up for a butchery class. I butcher the beef on the farm, cut it up, and if you take the class for a hundred dollars, you get a box of meat. So you're 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 buying a butchery class that you can take online, and then here comes a box of meat to you, and so it's a, 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 as a part of taking the class. So you're selling information and giving away product. So th there are there are numerous of these kinds of of circumventions developing. It's an exciting space. And the Rogue Food Conference is all about shining a, a spotlight on the successful ones that people are doing. Of course, it runs the government agents crazy. Government agents go crazy over this. And, um, and you know, you may or may not get a visit, depending. But I'm very excited about this, this guerrilla marketing under the radar, almost a black market system uh, that's developing to create space for exactly the kind of person you're talking about who is trying to get some some beef or some you know some some pork or something to their to their neighbors and they're stifled by either they can't get into a slaughterhouse because there aren't enough slaughterhouses or or to to get there legally 
there's too many hoops to run through. And so, and so the, the, the localized commerce never happens because it's just too difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So circling back to your food church um, comment, the first thing that came to my mind, you know, food church, we've been talking about food police is, you know, there, there's something in one of those documents that kind of governs how our country is run and supposed to be that says that there's supposed to be a separation of church and state. And, you know, thinking about that food church concept, uh, another thought that came to mind is patriotism. And I think a lot of folks have the wrong idea about what patriotism is and isn't. Patriotism is not the love of your government. Patriotism is not the love of your politicians. Patriotism is the love of your country. Patriotism is the religion of the soil. So <laughs> I, though, the, those just really struck me when you're talking about the concept of a food church and I'm kind of rolling around in my head. Okay. Food church. I could be the minister of the plains and, you know, maybe, maybe have some inf insulation from the government because of the separation of church and state, or maybe that's just a big reach, but, uh, no, 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 that's that's exactly it. It's the my um, in other words, the, the basic concept is that my my beliefs, my beliefs require that I eat this kind of food. And so so you, you go you go into it, you know, from your beliefs. You know, it's interesting, the permutations of the of the, the freedom of religion uh, uh, situation. For example, many, many years ago, um, I helped a lady here locally who was an atheist get religious exemption for her daughter because she proved in court that atheism is a religion just as much as, as being a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran. Atheism is a religion as well. And do you know they ended up having to grant her a religious exemption for homeschooling based on her atheistic beliefs. And so, you know, the Constitution doesn't say it has to be Protestant. It doesn't say it has to be, you know, uh, um, a, a Christian denomination. And so, so these, these, these belief structures uh, have been at the, at the core of Supreme Court rulings about religion way more than, you know, did, 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 did Jesus exist, or do you believe the Bible? Um, rather, it has been based on belief because people because the because the courts understand that this is not really about religion. I mean, a religion is a belief system. So when you come down to it, it's about beliefs, not whether you have a Bible in your home. And that's a that that's that's I think a. It's a little bit shocking sometimes to Christians to, to hear that, uh, but, but but that's the truth, and that's how broad that's how broad that that religious liberty is. It is it is really a wonderful it is a wonderful thing and has broad aspects. So I I'm I'm losing my hair. Have been for a long time. It's yeah. just, you know slowly. It's not retreating. It's just migrating a little bit yeah, yeah. here down here. <laughs> I'm not self-conscious about it. I made the decision 20 years ago that I just wasn't, I wasn't going to lose any sleep over it. Wasn't going to try to fight it. You know, I don't need Rogaine. Like 
every, uh-huh. male, every male on my mother's side of the family for uh-huh. probably five generations has lost their freaking hair. Yeah, yeah. Like, why bother with it? Right. So I wear a hat a lot. Mm-hmm. All the time when I'm outside. So I would go in to get my driver's license several years ago. And, you know, I sat down in the chair and they're going to take my picture. And like, take your hat off. I'm like, I don't want to. Like, no, you got to take your hat off. Law says you got to take your hat off. Okay, fine. Took my hat off, took the picture. And then within six months, I start seeing pictures of, let's just say, women from another religion being allowed to wear their religious head coverings. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they're allowed to have their face covered with just a little slit of their eyes. Hold on a minute. That doesn't make any sense. But what really makes me chuckle is there was a guy, I think he was up in Topeka, Kansas, who listed his religion as Pastafarian and went in and got his picture taken at the DMV wearing a pasta strainer on his head and claimed religious exemption. And I think there was actually a fight about it, um, fight about it with, with the state of Kansas and the state of Kansas eventually had to concede, okay, Pastafarianism is a valid religion. You're a member of it. You can wear your you can wear your colander on your head in your in your DMV picture. I might have some details messed up, but it's at least a funny story. Oh, that is that is a great story. That's a great story. And but 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 you know that kind of that kind of of broadness. Um. You know, I mean, I, I, I am a, I am a Christian, but, but I, I really appreciate that the courts. I appreciate when they interpret it broadly rather than narrowly. I, I, I think that's a, that's a better, that's a, that's a, it's a more liberty-minded interpretation to deal with it broadly than, than narrowly. Oh, for sure. But then you kind of you got to circle back to that eighty twenty rule, like who are the laws made for? Are they made for the majority or for the minority? That 80, 20 rule you brought up. I, I know it as the Pareto principle and it just seems to be applicable in so many things. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the questions that, uh, that one of my fans asked was they wanted to know about Venezuela and the move from Venezuela Back to Virginia. Huh. Okay. Well, wow. All right. I can, I can go into that story. So my, my dad, um, my dad flew, uh, flew in the Navy in world war two. And, uh, he was a Midwesterner grew up in uh, Indiana and from, a, from just very, very young age, you know, preteen, he developed a, an intense interest in developing countries and you know, New Frontier. I mean, you know, Admiral Perry had went got, went to the you know the pole, and and um, there was, it was a you know he grew up in in the in the twenties in a a time of uh, or in the thirties in a time twenties and thirties time of discovery, and um, and so he he just had this this idea. Uh, I'd like to farm in a de- in a developing country, not in the U.S. Uh, he didn't hate the U.S., but but just he saw it as a as a new frontier, you know, a new new place. And um, let's do the new thing. And so, you know, how do you how do you do that? You know, you're you're a Midwestern kid, no money, uh, no connections. You know, how do you do this? And so uh, after after the war, he, uh, GI Bill, he got his degree in economics 
went to Middlebury uh, College in Vermont for six months, studied Spanish, hitchhiked, hitchhiked from Vermont to Mexico, spent six months there with a family uh, boning up on his Spanish, came back, sat for the Foreign Service Civil Service exam in, Span in Spanish, passed it the first time through, and went as a bilingual accountant with Texas Oil Company to the early wildcat oil drilling ventures off the coast of Venezuela. This was you know, the beginning of OPEC and the opening up. This is, you know, 1947, 48, 49. And um, uh, making a long story short, he, um, he got there and it was a very uh, well-paying job. And in seven years, he was able to save up enough money to buy a thousand acre, a thousand acre property in the highlands of Venezuela, left the oil company, went to the farm. And our, the goal was to, to raise um, chickens and dairy. So meat, chickens, and dairy. And uh, so we started with chickens. They go a little quicker. And uh, meanwhile, my older brother was born. Then I was born. And uh, we're cooking, you know. And what happens is that, um, that, that in Venezuela, those indigenous chickens that they had, you know, running around the village sewers and squat pots and stuff, they all had kind of a, a nasal drip, a kind of a, a sub-therapeutic uh, pneumonia, you know, infectious kind of thing. And, and they, they would drip snot out of their noses. Well, you know, this, this is 1940, this is 1950s Venezuela. Uh, you know, the, the way the food, they didn't have Walmart and Costco, the way you got chicken. If you wanted chicken for dinner, you waited until the chicken vendor came around. So they'd have the banana vendor, the pineapple vendor, the papaya, the, you know, all the different things, the, and, 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 and you would, you would, you know, uh, dicker with that guy uh, and, and and buy uh, his product and you did cook it for dinner. Didn't have refrigeration and electricity and all that stuff. And so, um, and so there was enough indigenous knowledge to know that if you wanted good chicken, you rubbed your finger down the beak and you looked at the nasal drip and the, and the driest ones were the healthiest when you, you know, went out back and, and butchered it. And so, of course, the vendors were always looking for a cleaner chicken, you know, uh, 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 with, with less, less snot dripping out of its nostrils. Well, our chickens were clean. And dad went and, you know, you know how these Latin American markets are, you know, the farmers bring their stuff to the village square. And, I and uh, don't. I've never been there. Oh, OK. Well, well, you've seen pictures. You've seen pictures, probably. But I mean, it's, it's the same thing you see today in, you know, Pakistan and, and, and Latin American countries. The farmers are in the in the, you know, the town square and, and you have these people buying stuff. And um, so very quickly, dad cornered the market on the local market on chicken. All the vendors would line up. They'd buy his chicken because they were they were dry. Well, the, the other farmers, the neighbor farmers, they didn't ask him, how do you do this? They just said, we practiced witchcraft and voodoo. Because that's the only way you can have a clean chicken is witchcraft and voodoo. So here we are. We're rocking along. 19, 1959, uh, there's, a, there's a junta, a junta, you know, a coup d'etat, and, um, and a, a rebellion uprising. And when you have anarchy in a culture, what happens is there are, there are a lot of scores that get settled during anarchy that would never get settled otherwise when there's a rule of law. And so we got caught up in that, the, 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 you know, the, the neighbor farmers, oh, this is a way to, you know, to get back at these, you know, these, uh, these gringos here. And so, 
Uh, so basically, we you know we fled the back doors. The machine guns came in the front door, lost everything. They they took they you know they took over the farm, took everything. We couldn't get any protection whatsoever. Uh, we spent an extra you know six or seven months there. After that meeting with every you know the interior minister, the commerce secretary, the treasury secretary, the agriculture secretary, nobody could give us any help. Uh, and so the only thing to do was to to leave the country. We couldn't we couldn't get any protection, and so and and so we you know we came back to the U.S. and uh, Dad was there twelve years. He never got over it. Uh, he loved the people, loved the culture, loved and and you know what is there not to love when pineapples and bananas grow wild in your yard? I mean you know so so as a little as a little child, I actually spoke Spanish before English. Um, you know, in, in Venezuela, I was four when we left. So I don't, re I don't remember the farm. I do remember the turmoil in, in, uh, in Caracas and Elimon and a couple of the little uh, villages where we went through as we were fleeing and, and getting out of there. Um, and, uh, and, and came back, uh, Easter Sunday, 1961, dad was 39 and, um, and ready to start over. And I remember when I hit 39, I thought, man, if I lost everything, would I start over? And dad, dad really grew in my, you know, in my respect uh, at that. And he'd already passed away. He, he died very young at 66. I was only 31 when he passed away. And, but, and I think a lot of, a lot of it was the stress of, of, he never, he never got over that, you know, that loss, but he was willing to restart here. Got this very, you know, worn out gullied rock pile. It was cheap. And and we started over, but he he never made a living from the farm. He was he was an accountant, like I said, he was trained in e economics. Mom was a school teacher, health and phys ed school teacher, and so the the school teacher and the accountant uh, got their money together off farm and paid the mortgage. So the, by the time by the time I was you know fourteen years old, um, you know it took us about ten years of putting every dime into the mortgage. The farm was paid for. So now we have this you know this big you know, this, this, this platform to experiment, to try things, to do things. And dad was very much an experimenter, got a hold of some Andre Voisin stuff and went down this, you know, the, this grass, this rotational grazing grass path uh, early on mobile infrastructure and uh, the rest is, the rest is history. But that's the, yeah, that's the Venezuela story. And uh, you know, now our family looking back, looking back at that, it was extremely tragic uh, at the time, but now looking back, we realized what a blessing it was because if we had stayed, we'd have probably been very successful. Let's assume we'd have been successful and built a, a pretty sizable deal going on. And, 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 and then, you know, nobody wants to be in Venezuela now. Um, and so, and so, you know, we're now, we now look back at that tragedy as a blessing that it protect, it got us out, got us out early so we could start over and build something here that would that could last and not be subject to the you know to the machinations of a of a junta. Okay, but thanks thanks for telling that story. I don't think it's been I don't think I've heard most of that anywhere else. And uh -huh. you mentioned that the neighbors said you're practicing voodoo and witchcraft on your yeah. Chickens. Yeah, and that that brings to mind that several university professors, tenured university professors in the Plains have said that exact thing about, quote, rotation grazing, managed yeah. intensive grazing, or doing anything other than just set stock grazing. They say, oh, that, yeah. that's voodoo crap. That doesn't work. And yeah. 
okay, there's a reason why you've been at university for 25 years and haven't put out a meaningful paper that matters anything that wasn't sponsored by, by a chemical yeah. company. Right. Fine. Right. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess part of the reason I knew some of that, that, you know, you guys had to flee, that your family had to flee Venezuela because of, you know, civil and governmental unrest. Right. And that's a great point that, you know, when that anarchy starts to set in and the rule of law breaks down, people want to try to settle scores because there's nobody watching. Right. Right. And I, and I, and I realized that, you know, you were very young when you left, but as a student of history, are we, are we heading down the same path in this country? Uh, yes, I, I think, I think we are now. What's important to understand is that before anarchy, you have tyranny. And and so so what happens is you get you get more and more. I mean, th this is the path of Rome, right? This is what Rome. And, and so so you you have you have increasing, increasing government, government, uh, I'll just say government uh, intervention, uh, whether it's, you know, regulations or or manipulation or uh, censorship or whatever. But 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 you, you have increasing government government uh, control and activity in in the society and, and, and so you move toward tyranny more and more and more until finally that that tyranny that tyranny just just falls of its own um either ineptness or or people get tired of it or uh you know black markets whatever it, it eventually it collapses or or it, or, or it just gets overrun. I mean, in Rome's case, you know, it was the Huns. I mean, they they collapsed internally and then were weak, and then the Huns uh, came in. But um, you know, yeah, that that cycle of history, you know, the the bondage to courage, courage to you know, courage to valor, valor to liberty, liberty to wealth, wealth to lethargy, lethargy to you know, to um, you know, to uh, victimhood and uh, and victimhood to you know, back to bondage, you know, that basic cycle has played out over and over and over throughout history. And and I think that we do ourselves as Americans a great injustice. Look, I, I, I believe in American exceptionalism. I absolutely believe in American exceptionalism. This is, this is, there's no, you don't have to travel much in the world. I've traveled to, I don't know what, 20 different countries uh, doing seminars and things around the world. And it's, it's profound, uh, to, to, to get to go to a country and and people are equally whatever upset about things um but they don't have a bill of rights you know they don't have a freedom of speech bill of rights they, they don't have a and and um uh, and so I, I i i do is our country perfect absolutely not of course it's not but but i do believe in th that this is a this was an experiment it was an experiment but very wise uh wise um um just wise wise people that that birthed it and uh and i think we do ourselves a disservice think oh well, we're americans that'll never happen to us you know we'll we'll never collapse well you know we'll never get taken over and and i think that's uh that's foolishness uh i i think the fact that it's happened uh, over and over and over throughout history uh we are absolutely um as as um as vulnerable as vulnerable to to we're, we're as vulnerable to the to the principles of of 
civilizational cycles as any civilization in history, whether it's whether it's famine, uh, disease, economic collapse, civil disorder, um, moral moral uh, debauchery and and and, and chaos. Uh, you know, we we are as susceptible as anyone else. You know, gravity gravity is everywhere, and nobody ever threw a ball so high that it didn't come down. And same same with same with us. Okay, I mean, I, there's nothing in there I can disagree with. I think the question is, the big question is time. The big question is time for absolutely answer yeah. that one. <laughs> no. And no, nobody can answer see it while it's happening. We're not going to realize that it's begun until it's yeah. almost done. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not the hero of that story. And I don't think you are either. You know, we're just NPCs watching it all play out from the sidelines. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so, so what that means is that I, I, you know, I watch what's going on. But I don't go to, you know, to marches and I don't, you know, I don't carry, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing stuff. And so, so if, if you and I wanted to make a list, um, if you and I wanted to make a list of stuff that we're, we're angry and frustrated about, uh, we could make a pretty decent list. All right. So I encourage people, make the list, make, make the list. All right. Here's what I'm angry and frustrated about. But now, instead of just being angry and frustrated, let's invert that. Let's flip it on its head. And instead of just feeding this all this negative emotion, let's flip it on its head and build an arc. Let's build a light tower so, so that when society, when society becomes hopeless and helpless, we can provide hope and help at that time. And, and, and suddenly that takes all that negative energy, flips it to positive, and we actually build, build hope and help into a dysfunctional culture little little you know little arcs little oases and um and that that's what that's what i'm devoting myself to and that's what i'm encouraging other people so that we have these you know we have these um you know these neighborhoods these communities uh of people uh, that that are that are resilient and can flourish even in a downtime yes 100 percent. i think that's the best thing that anybody can do, you know, in the in the challenging times we're in, you know, the post-COVID era, economic unstability, people are moving around the globe, you know, there's displacement from the Ukraine war, there's coming climate displacement, there's people that are, you know, like we talked about earlier, there's big money leaving the cities, leaving the coasts, mm -hmm. because they're not required to be in the office five days anymore. Most, right. You know, there's a lot of people that can telecommute, you know. Mm -hmm. If five, if three years ago you told me that there would be software engineers that live in the mountains and commute to work on Starlink, I would say, what's Starlink? You know, it, yeah. If if you've been hiding under a rock, Starlink is like I don't know. It, Elon Musk has launched several thousand satellites that link sure. up with lasers to provide internet from outer freaking space. Yeah, and yeah. It's enabling people to go up and live in places where they couldn't and do jobs that previously they were tied to a desk. That's right. And it's it's very it's a very interesting time we're we're getting into. And so something 
that you mentioned earlier is the the European model of tenancy of land tenancy, where the people that own land they own it as a defensive measure against inflation, and the people that without the money are managing the land as a wealth accumulation offensive measure. Can you maybe drill down into that a little bit? We'll try to explore that concept a little bit. Yeah, I I, I can. Um, so. Oh, I, I guess the direction that we could go with that is, you know, if we're talking about a a shared ownership model, who is accountable then for the stewardship of that resource? And how do we avoid a tragedy of the commons as we move towards a, you know, a, a shared ownership model or more of a tenant, you know, a landowner tenant type relationship? And let me, let me, let me kind of, you know, just give you some background where I'm at. Like I own most, I own a portion of the ranch. I lease the rest of it from the family partnership. My dad's the trustee and he basically lets me do whatever I want. I also manage it and I'm the labor. So I have, I'm in the unique, I'm in it, not the unique, I'm in a great position that, you know, if labor needs something from management, I don't have to write a report and justify it on a budget line item. And if ownership wants something, wants labor to do something weird, I've already talked myself into doing it. I don't have to, you know, talk the manager into doing it. That has to talk the labor unit into doing it. And that kind of ties into my earlier point that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people that are involved in commodity production farming now, they're tenants. And unless we have long-term shared management goals for our land, for ecological goals for our land shared between ownership and management, then there's a big disconnect between those two layers and getting practices implemented that will actually, you know, preserve the ecological bounty of the land or preserve the land base for future generations. Because like I talked about, you know, that landowner, he wants his rent check. He wants his crop share yeah. check because yeah. to him, you know, that's family land and he depends on that income every year or that, you know, whatever the CRP payment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm starting to put push to push time here. Just so you know, um, I need to, I've got a one o'clock, uh, I've got a one o'clock phone call. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, what I'm, what I'm describing, the European model is this tenancy is it's a long, it's called tenureage. Tenureage, it's long-term tenureage. And so, uh, for example, you know, King Charles um, uh, doesn't farm all of his land. Uh, one, of my, one of my most interesting weeks ever, I spent a week in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom with a, uh, with a lord, a lord and a lady, um, their, their nobility, actually. And they, they had... Uh, they owned uh, about 10,000 acres, which is pretty big in in United Kingdom, England. And they had about 130 farm tenants. He showed me his spreadsheet. You know, this guy here is at 37 years. This guy here is at 67. This guy here is at 23. This guy here is at, 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 at 89. They're, they're called 99-year 99 tenderages, and they're, they're inheritable. So 99 years is a long time. So, so you you have this tenancy, and so they actually have tenancy boards, and so the landowner cannot increase. Uh, they're a little bit like like rent boards in our country, uh, where a landlord can't increase the rent, but so much. 
I'm sure there's all sorts of formulas, but this actually was created as part of uh, the Magna Carta, goes back that far, where they said, you know what, we're going to let royalty, we're going to get let nobles own the land, but you're going to have to, but but you can't just raise the rent and send a peasant off of it. And, and so so there is a there's a very uh, a political, uh, as you can imagine, you know, this is not a perfect system. Uh, don't anybody think I'm mentioning a perfect system. I'm just saying that that it appears we are heading toward a and I thought Alanation when he first told me that uh, that we were heading to that. I thought he was, you know, smoking, smoking something funny until until our our uh, in our largest environmental group in Virginia the um the Piedmont Environmental Council which is our largest kind of in-state environmental group held a conference on tenureage and i had never heard that used here but it, it was completely about they asked me to come and speak but um it, it, it i'd never heard that used here but the whole idea is you have all as you mentioned uh, Brian, you have all this money moving out of the city they're buying pieces of land you know the i mean uh, land ownership is in americans dna so you know i'm wealthy so i'm buying land bill gates is buying land right all right so 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 this person comes out and buys this you know the, this this country estate they don't know anything about farming and so um, and so what they do is they just hire some neighbor farmer to come and, you know, and, and bush hog it twice a year just to keep it open. And it actually comes out of production in many cases. And so the whole goal of this was noble. It was about how do we take these, these country, these country estates owned by rich people and help them to understand that production agriculture can build soil and can actually be better than just bush hogging it twice a year, and uh, and it was it was really uh, uh, quite amazing, but it was it was very interesting to go to get some of the the um, the the paperwork agreements behind some of these very very long term you know long term relationships. Um, uh, I'll close. I'll, I'll just mention. I had a friend that went to China. And he did a a pastured livestock farm in China, and in China, it's communist China. You can't own land in China, but you can rent it. And so uh, he rented a thousand acres in China for fifty years. So a thousand acres, he rented it for fifty years for fifty dollars a year. Now, now that doesn't sound like too bad a deal for me. Uh, because a lot of our capital is tied up in the land. And this allowed him to not tie his capital up in the land, but to actually, you know, uh, um, actually, you know, tie it up in things that actually were, uh, you know, turn, turn a return on investment. I had another, another uh, uh, friend went to uh, outer Mongolia in Mongolia. And, uh, and they actually, uh, they actually sent three farmers over here uh, to see me. And I visited with them, these three Mongolian farmers. I said, you know, Mongolia, you can't own land either. I said, so, so if I came to Mongolia and wanted to start a farm, what would I do? They said, well, you come to the village elders and you present your plan. And if we're, you know, we're interested in it, then we'll say, okay, you can go over there and, and, and do your thing over, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll tell you. And, um, and, and then if we like it, you can just stay there. 
And if you continue to do a God job and you're uh, beneficial to the community, you can stay there, you know, your whole life and your family's life. And, and that's how you kind of carve out a place. I said, so, so how much would it cost me to, how much would it cost me to do this? And they said uh, about 25 cents an acre per year, 25 cents an acre per year. So, you know, I've had experience in places, being at places where the, the, this American ideal of of I have to own my property, control my property, live on my property. There's a lot of other ways to skin that cat, and um, and I just think that we limit ourselves as farmers if the only way we see forward for our farm is to actually own the land and 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 be you know a sole whatever sole controller. Uh, that there are collaborative, there are shared expectations. I mean, we lease several properties. We sit down and we we create, you know, shared objectives. And so that we go into it with very clear written expectations about what about what's going to happen on that land. And those are shared. And um, and and so I think I think uh, we can do a lot more if we're not afraid to communicate, be transparent. And, and develop partners that share that share expectations and objectives. Perfect. And I, I know you said you had to go. We're getting very, very close. Um, so let's close it out. Tell people where they can find you, where they can buy their books, where they can get in contact, and where they can send you hate mail. <laughs> I can get my email address for the hate mail. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so so uh, every I don't have a personal website. Uh, everything comes through Polyface Farm. So our website has you know my speaking schedule, our you know food, swag, uh, um, seminars that we're doing, information, whatever books. Um, it's Polyface Farms, P O L Y F A C E, PolyfaceFarms dot uh, uh, com. And so just jump on the website. You can contact us. You can uh, visit that. It's a very comprehensive website. Lots of information on there. And uh, we welcome you to come and come and uh, enjoy it. Awesome. Joel, I really appreciate your time today. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I guess I'll go ahead and let you go because uh, I'd hate to make you late for your next appointment. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a real delight and pleasure. Um, come see us. I'll try to do that next time I'm out in Virginia. But. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thank you.